Hi, I'm Paul Greenberg, author of the New York Times bestseller Four Fish and American Catch. And I'm Nick Mink, co-founder of the direct-to-consumer seafood company Sitka Salmon Shares. And what do we have in common, Paul? We like fish. That's right. And Paul and I have partnered to bring you an eight-episode series called Fish Talk. Each episode, Paul and I will trade off as hosts to take you on a journey from our coast to our kitchens so that we can better understand how fish get to our plates. So, Paul, what should listeners expect from upcoming episodes? Well, Nick, let's face it. For non-fishy people, fish are confusing. They're confusing to cook. They're confusing to clean. What's wild? What's farmed? All these different choices you have to make if you're going to eat fish in a responsible way. So on this podcast, we're going to talk to conservationists, scientists, chefs. At the end of each episode of Fish Talk, you will be a little less confused about fish. I couldn't agree more, Paul. All right, let's dive in. Starkiss presents Charlie the Tuna. I know what that is, Charlie. Yeah, what is it? A modern statue. Yeah, you looked at the label. <laughs> what you doing with it, Charlie? Sending it to Starkist so they'll notice what good taste I got. This 70s ad campaign is about the most ridiculous portrayal of fish I've ever heard. Charlie, a low-class tuna with a Brooklyn accent, tries to make himself seem high-class enough to earn the right to be caught, killed, and eaten by humans. Meanwhile, in every ad, his little fish friend always tells him why his plan is ultimately doomed. But Charlie... They ain't exactly looking for tunas with good taste. Starkiss wants tunas that taste good. Nah, here they come. Can you see it from up there? Sorry, Charlie, but only the best tasting tuna get to be Starkiss. A tuna that wants to be eaten? A tuna company that says it knows where to find the best tuna? Consumers that think they're tasting the best tuna? It's all ridiculous. So on this episode of Fish Talk, we're going to unpack that can and find out what's really inside. But in the spirit of Charlie, we thought we'd start with a really good-tasting tuna recipe prepared with a cook who truly has good taste, Melissa Clark of The New York Times. Melissa, you and I have talked over the years about various fishy things, but I think the most recent time that we talked was at peak pandemic when canned fish was really on everybody's minds. you remember? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, we were all stocking up on anything that would last us through the pandemic. And canned fish was among the top things on people's lists. In fact, I know because I wrote a lot of those shopping lists for people. Get your anchovies, <laughs> get your tuna, get your salmon. <laughs> I think a lot of America just thinks canned tuna only just to put on their kids' sandwiches. But there's a lot of stuff out there in cans, right, that people could make use of more generally. Absolutely. I mean, there are certainly more sustainable choices. It's interesting that tuna has become this default, though, especially when you talk about it being the thing you can get in every deli, you know, tuna salad, every deli, every bagel shop. It just seems like if you're mixing the fish in with that much mayonnaise, you could probably <laughs> use another fish. It's not going to be that obvious. So I would love to help people maybe use their canned tuna more wisely. Yep, definitely. It's on my mind. But what are we making today? We are making a tuna panzanella with mm -hmm. mozzarella. Now, panzanella is a bread salad. It is what Italians do when they have lots of leftover bread mm -hmm. and ripe tomatoes. And you mix those together and the juices of those ripe tomatoes moisten the bread that's maybe stale or old and, and gives it a new life and just adds so much flavor. So you want to start with your tomatoes 
I find that it really helps to salt them ahead because it draws out the juices. It just seasons them more thoroughly. So that's how we're going to start with this recipe. We're going to cut up our tomatoes and put them in a big bowl. What size dice do you want? Bite-sized pieces. You just want to be able to pick up one piece on a fork and stuff it in your mouth. So however you (laughs) interpret bite size. (laughs) I used your recommendation of getting a couple of different types of tomatoes. And I got this nice beefsteak tomato. And then I've got just a really beautiful little box of cherry tomatoes. Yes. The big tomatoes, you know, like a beefsteak will have more juice. And you really do want a lot of juice in the bowl because that's what's going to season and soften the bread. So a combination is perfect. Oh, good. I have a beefsteak tomato too. So just sprinkle them lightly with salt. Okay, so now you want to add your mozzarella. And I like to get a nice fresh piece of mozzarella. And instead of cutting it, I like to tear it into bite-sized pieces. At this point, you're also going to add some thinly sliced red onion and a grated garlic clove. Yep. Two tablespoons of red wine vinegar, or you could use any acid at this point. You know, you could use lime juice or lemon as I like to point out all the time, I make my own vinegar. So oh, going to... well, 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 well. <laughs> okay, so we put in the onions. I've got the mozzarella. And your vinegar and oh, right. your garlic. And then we're going to use some basil to add freshness. Okay, how much of that? Just a handful. Okay. Just however much. I usually just sort of tear it up, but you oh, could just see. coarsely chop it. Or you could do a chiffonade. You could do a ribbon. So throw everything into that bowl, and then you just want to make sure it's well-seasoned. So if you think it might need more salt, put a little more salt in. And then you want to add both black pepper and red pepper flakes. And the reason is because they have different types of heat. So you really do want to use both. Now you want to just stir everything around. Yep. And you add one tablespoon of vinegar to another bowl. And then you want to just add a teeny little, like a teeny pinch of salt and pepper in that bowl. We're going to make a little dressing here. Okay. Now you want to whisk in some olive oil, a quarter cup or so, and you're just making a little vinaigrette. Now we're going to add the cucumber. You guys should have about a half a cup of thinly sliced cucumber. So if you have, you know, those little Kirby cucumbers, Uh about one of those, we're going to marinate that. And we're going to add also just a little bit of parsley or cilantro or mint and about a half a cup of that. But it doesn't even matter. I mean, that's the thing. Just add as many herbs as you want. This is, you're making a delicious, easy salad. It just doesn't matter. I have some fresh thyme here. What do you think about fresh thyme, Melissa? Throw it in. All right. Go for it. Now, why do we keep it those kind of separate? Like, what's the reasoning behind that? The cucumber bowl has less acidity in it. It's got a little vinegar in it, but it's got a lot of olive oil. So if we had put the cucumbers in with the tomatoes, you know how like cucumbers are, they're pickles, right? They just soak up the um, acid. They just soak it up really quickly. And we don't want them to be that pickly. We want to keep some of their freshness. You know, that is a really excellent explanation. I really appreciate that. So Melissa, we've got our cucumbers, we've got our croutons, we've got our tomato mixture with uh, mozzarella and all these herbs. What do we do next? So you just want to give everything a big toss to make sure that you're getting the juices well distributed. And then you're just going to let that soak for about 30 minutes. And that is going to allow the flavors to mingle and the bread to get a little bit soft. All right. While this all soaks, I'm going to talk to a bunch of other people regarding our next ingredient, tuna. And then after we've gotten some backstory, we'll come back to Melissa and Nick and we'll add our tuna, see how it tastes. Okay, so we've got a recipe that makes tuna taste good. But how do you know if the tuna you're eating is good for the oceans? 
This is a question often on the mind of Carrie Brownstein, the director of Whole Foods' Seafood Sustainability Program. I caught up with Carrie recently to find out how the supermarket giant parses good tuna from bad. All right, let's dive into the very serious business of tuna. How does a tuna make it into Whole Foods? So our quality standards for all seafood, including tuna, require that the fishery is certified by the Marine Stewardship Council, MSC for short. The Marine Stewardship Council is a certification program for sustainable fisheries. And if the fishery is not certified by the MSC, then it has to be rated green or yellow by Monterey Bay Aquarium Seafood Watch, a nonprofit organization that produces reports on fisheries based on the abundance of the species and the effectiveness of the management for that species, as well as impacts of fishing on the habitat, as well as other species that could be caught in the process of fishing. For canned tuna, we have an additional requirement that only pull-in-line, hand-line, or troll fisheries are allowed. And also traceability, which is the ability to track tuna from the boats to the cans, to our shelves. There are some other standards as well. A lot of tuna out there in the market is treated with carbon monoxide in order to give it a brighter color, to make it look more red and more fresh, even if it's not. We don't allow treatments that disguise the freshness of the fish. Those are the overarching points. So why is it that you only want pull-in-line caught tuna? So the conventional way to catch yellowfin and skipjack tuna for most of the tuna you find in cans in the conventional markets is with purse nets, which circle schools of tuna and are closed at the bottom like a string. And in the process of fishing for tunas, Persanes and long lines also catch a lot of other species that they're not intending to catch. This unintended catch is called bycatch, and it has serious repercussions for a lot of marine life out there, including sharks and sea turtles, juvenile fish, and marine mammals. There are several advantages to pole-in-line fishing. Pole-in-line fishing catches tuna one fish at a time. So the risks of overfishing are lower than with gear that catch a lot of tuna at once, Second, there's little to no bycatch, which keeps more marine life swimming in the oceans. And third, there are very significant social benefits to pull-in-line fisheries. More people are employed in pull-in-line fisheries than in industrial per seine or long-line fisheries. Using the Maldives as an example, each ton of tuna caught by one-by-one fishing methods creates employment for 44 fishers versus one with a purseiner for each ton of tuna caught. Wow. So like more than an order of magnitude, fewer people. Now, these purseiners, these big industrial fleets, you, know, you hear about, I mean, even tuna that's outside of the Whole Foods ecosystem claim to be dolphin safe. What does that mean? What are they doing that's different from somebody that's not dolphin safe? Yeah, let's talk about dolphin safe and, and what that means. So in the eastern tropical Pacific Ocean, yellowfin tuna are associated with dolphins. So in other words, the dolphins and the tuna travel together with the tuna swimming beneath the dolphins. And in trying to catch the tuna, fishermen used to set their nets on the dolphins. Oh, so like they would actually look for the dolphins. Yeah. Environmental groups and the public became enraged by that. 
And to make a very political and complicated story short, laws were put in place in the United States to address this. And the Dolphin Protection Consumer Act was passed in 1990. And what that means is that fishermen have to certify that no per se net or other fishing gear was intentionally deployed on or used to encircle dolphins and that no dolphins were killed or seriously injured in the sets. Now, that being said, even though the nets cannot be set directly on the dolphins in that way, there are still concerns about whether the dolphin populations have actually recovered, as well as there still is stress on dolphins that occur during fishing operations, including separation of mothers and their calves, as well as injuries. So when we developed our standards for Cantuna at Whole Foods, we really wanted to set a standard requiring that tuna must be sourced only from pole line fisheries. Right. Okay. So that's dolphin safety. Now, the other thing that I hear come up a lot with tunas is FADs, F-A-Ds. What are those and, and why are those an issue? So FADs, and we're not talking about trendy clothes, <laughs> FADs are fish aggregating devices. These are floating objects that attract tunas who gather there for shelter, but they also attract a lot of other marine life like juvenile fish and sea turtles and sharks. So when fishermen set their nets on the fads, they end up catching a lot of other marine life. It's also that when fishermen are finished with the fads, they often are leaving them at sea where they continue to entangle marine life. So these lost or abandoned fads can also cause destruction of sensitive ecosystems like coral reefs, and they can contribute to plastic pollution in our oceans. There are approximately 100,000 fads deployed each year, and estimates are that up to 90% of these fads are never recovered from the sea, oh and God. they continue to ghost fish, which means catching things in their way when nobody is monitoring them or retrieving them. So it's problematic. Right. Gotcha. Let's talk a little bit about the specific products that are out there. Something that always comes up when I talk to people about tuna, they're confused about what's chunk light and what is chunk white tuna. Can you resolve that confusion for me? Chunk light is a market name for skipjack tuna usually, but sometimes it can also refer to yellowfin tuna. And chunk white and white tuna are marketing names for albacore tuna. Different species. Yes. It's better if companies use the actual species names. That way it's easier if consumers are using a sustainability guide or looking out to understand what it is that they're buying, that it's more clear. Gotcha. The other question that comes up a lot from particularly young women who are considering getting pregnant, who are pregnant, or small children. What's the deal with mercury? And is there one kind of tuna that's preferable to another if we're trying to avoid high levels of methylmercury in tuna? So mercury bioaccumulates up the food chain. So your bigger predatory fish have the highest mercury levels. So in the context of tunas, the biggest species like bluefin tuna will have the highest mercury levels compared to smaller species like skipjack. But interestingly, you know, in addition to the sustainability benefits of catching tuna one by one with pole and line gear instead of long lines, tuna caught by pole and line typically have lower mercury levels because these fisheries catch smaller fish at the surface who haven't accumulated as much mercury as the larger fish caught deeper in the ocean by long lines. 
So do you feel safe giving your kids Whole Foods canned tuna? Like, is that part of lunch on a regular basis? We love the albacore. We do buy that. I do give it to my kids and we don't eat it every day. You have to look at these things in the context of all the other things that you're eating, right? And even the FDA and the EPA are recommending that women who may become pregnant and nursing mothers eat up to 12 ounces of fish and shellfish that are lower in mercury per week. Canned tuna is something that has been popular, but you can enjoy it in moderation and it's not something that you have to eat exclusively as your source of seafood. The supermarket, though, it's really just the surface of the tuna business. Because before a buyer like Whole Foods even gets to choose which tuna it's going to buy, lots of nations have to negotiate in order to figure out who's going to get what. I asked a friend in Australia who often sits at those tuna negotiations how this whole process works. I'm Quentin Hannick. I'm an associate professor at the Australian National Centre for Ocean Resources and Security, where I run the Fisheries Governance Research Program. I've been really fortunate to have a varied career. I've worked in government, non-government, worked as a consultant. I used to work for the Australian Aid Program as a technical advisor. So over the last 20 years, I've spent a lot of time, particularly in the Pacific, where I've worked for different island governments in advisory roles. So most of my time over the last couple of decades has been spent working at international meetings and working with Pacific Island governments to help them negotiate and manage their tuna fisheries. Now, when we're talking about island governments, we're talking about these like little tiny countries, like specks in the sea, like Palau or Kiribati or something, right? Yeah. So we're talking about some of the world's smallest countries by land, but by the size of their ocean, they're huge. You know, Kiribati is a great example, 800 square kilometers of land, tiny by any measure, but by the size of exclusive economic zone, the waters that it owns and manages, it's the 12th largest country in the world. So these are gargantuan island states by the size of the ocean that they manage. Now, why does Kiribati get all that ocean? Because this amazing treaty was negotiated in the 1970s called the Law of the Sea. And effectively, that's our constitution for the oceans. It effectively regulates how we utilize our oceans, how we protect and preserve our oceans. And one of the key things it did was it basically assigned exclusive economic zones to all coastal states, and it also assigned the freedom of the seas to all states. It created this concept of the common heritage for the area, but it also actually assigns sovereign rights to the coastal states to manage and protect their own fisheries. So to get a visual on this, let's say take Kiribati, it's really like a bullseye in the middle of a target, right? Like you you basically draw a circle around Kiribati and within that circle is their exclusive economic zones. Do I have that right? Yes, you do. So I mean, all coastal states, you know, the US, for example, has exclusive economic zones stretching around all of its island, all its continent. And these will extend out to 200 nautical miles from the coastline, from the baseline. And then within that exclusive economic zone, that 200 nautical mile zone, that coastal state then has sovereign rights over the use of the resources within those waters. And it also has obligations to protect and preserve the biodiversity within those waters as well. All right. So let's zero in on the target, so to speak. We're talking tuna here. So presumably in the Pacific where you've been working, a lot of tuna is swimming through these different exclusive economic zones of these different countries. and they have to be managed in some way. 
The fundamental characteristic of tuna is it's migratory. It doesn't care about all these maritime borders that we create. There is no jurisdiction that it pays any attention to whatsoever. It just swims and swims. So it swims across all of these boundaries that you know humans have created. And then that basically means that no one state can actually manage tuna on its own, because if one state does the right thing, you still need the other states that that tuna is swimming through to also do the right thing. So it really requires cooperative approaches to manage tuna to ensure that we're all doing the right thing and managing the fish sustainably. Okay, so we've got all these tuna, they're swimming through all these different national waters. How do we divide up the tuna pie, so to speak, so that everyone gets their fair share? So at the national level to start with, in a place like Kiribati, you will have artisanal fishermen, and they will go out to sea in small boats and catch tuna in adjacent waters you know, near the coast. And then they'll bring those tuna home and they'll be you know, critically important for livelihoods and food security for those coastal communities. So good management ensures that not only are they catching sustainable levels, but they're also not conflicting with other larger vessels like industrial personas or long ladders. So you want to make sure that your management is recognizing all the different stakeholders and managing them in such a way that there's no conflict and that's sustainable. So at that national level in Kiribati, what we see is delineation lines so that the artisanal fishermen can fish in the 12 miles or 60 miles or whatever the limit might be for each different state, and they can access those fisheries. And then beyond that, you will then have grounds for industrial fishers like the persainers and the longliners. Many of those fleets will be distant water fishing fleets, and they will come from far, far away, you know, you know, from the United States, from Korea, China, Taiwan, etc. And then they will fish in those exclusive economic zones and also on the high seas. So when we manage those distant water fishing fleets, we need to ensure that everyone is fishing in a sustainable manner, that no one's using gear that's particularly destructive, like drift nets, and that we're collecting data so that we can actually track the trends of the fishery and manage it sustainably. To do that, we create these big international organizations that are based on treaties that are legally binding, and then we all sit down and argue about it. So there is a lot of arguing that goes on though, right? I mean, it's not just like, oh, you have the yellowfin, I'll take the skipjack, and then let's go to dinner. There's actually some pretty fierce debate that goes in these meetings, no? Yeah, and that happens everywhere, whether it's the Atlantic, the Pacific, or the Indian Ocean. The Pacific has been particularly strategic in that in the early 1980s, the Pacific Island states increasingly started cooperating and developing their own capacity to negotiate. Once these new exclusive economic zones were assigned to them, they recognized that they didn't have the capacity at that time to manage them sustainably, and they also needed collective power in order to negotiate them equitably. So they established organizations to do so. And then at the more broader level, they recognized that they needed to set up these international organizations that included the distant water fishing states so that everyone could sit at the same table and then actually negotiate what was needed. And a good example of that would be in about 2008, our scientists were telling us that there was too much fishing going on on Big Eye and we were overfishing it and we had to reduce the catch. Big Eye being a big tuna. Yes. <laughs> Sorry. There are five key species that we often talk about when we talk about tuna. Big Eye tuna is one of those high value, fresh frozen fish that you'll see in sashimi, see in a restaurant, and you'll pay a lot of money for. Bluefin tuna is another one of those, and that's at the sort of the top of that luxury fish. 
And then you've got yellowfin and albacore that you can use and cook in different ways. In America, you'll often end up with albacore in a can, but you can also eat it as a steak. Yellowfin, if you put it in a can, you're being criminal, but some people do. But yellowfin just tastes too good as sashimi or cooked. And then skipjack always ends up in a can. And that skipjack canned fish is one of the key resources for the Pacific Islands. That's the tuna fish sandwich fish. Yes, skipjack and albacore will be the two key sandwich fish. Mostly skipjack. It's the albacore market is largely an American market. The rest of us tend to eat skipjack. And the other complication is it sounds fairly simple, like you said. You know, all right, I'll have the yellowfin. I don't particularly like skipjack, so you can have that one. It doesn't quite work like that because a lot of these fish hang out together. So if you're fishing with certain gears and you're trying to catch skipjack, there's a fair chance you'll catch a bunch of perhaps juvenile big eye and yellowfin as well. So you have to manage the fisheries in a way that's sort of integrated and comprehensive. So devil's advocate, though, I just recently was made aware that Monterey Bay Aquarium, which is one of the primary sustainability ratings NGOs in the United States, that they were going to give a red avoid label to basically everything from the Indian Ocean, whether it was caught hook and line, whether it was caught persane. Is that true? And, and what does that say about the efficacy of this kind of management? So this is where, <laughs> where there's no simple answer. It's a good example. So in the Pacific Ocean, we have the Pacific Island Foreign Fisheries Agency and we have the Western Central Pacific Fisheries Commission. So we have two bodies that are really solid and that have done reasonably well at implementing management, largely thanks to the Pacific Island states that very early on realized that they needed minimum terms and conditions for access to their waters. So they required observers and they required logbooks to be filled out and they required vessel monitoring systems. So we've got decades and decades of precedence in the Pacific to actually manage the tuna fisheries. So skipjack, yellowfin, big eye, albacore, they're all managed reasonably well. There are some problems, but they're all at sustainable levels. None of them are overfished. In the Indian Ocean, there isn't that history of the coastal states acting collectively for so long. They're only just starting to try to do that now. It's a very different organization. In the Indian Ocean, it's called the Indian Ocean Tuna Commission which is actually part of the United Nations Food and Agriculture Organization. And that actually makes it harder because that makes it more political to some degree and also makes it more bureaucratic and, and difficult than, say, the Western and Central. So in the Indian Ocean, you've got a very, very powerful European Union that has many, many personas catching most of the fish. And the European Union is a very aggressive negotiator and makes life very, very difficult for developing coastal states who might want to negotiate measures that are sustainable and that also protect their artisanal communities that depend on it for livelihoods. So the Indian Ocean is in much, much more desperate straits than the Pacific Ocean. One is tempted to do a sort of uh, Casablanca imitation and say, um, excuse me, but I'm coming to take your tuna and uh, there's nothing you can do about it. Huh? This again with the story is always complicated. So last week we all sat in the Indian Ocean Tuna Commission and I have to give full credit to the government of Maldives, which just was fantastic. So we actually had a win last week where the government of Maldives worked really hard all year in backroom negotiations and also negotiating with all of the coastal states and negotiating one-on-one -on -one with the European Union to negotiate a conservation and management measure for yellowfin, the key tuna in the Indian Ocean that was in trouble. 
And that took all of last week to, you know, finalise that negotiation right up until the last moment. The meeting didn't finish until 2.30 in the morning. So we had a win. And that win was due to the government of Maldives really sticking out there and saying, this fishery is critically important to our people. It is fundamental to our development aspirations. We have to reduce fishing to keep it sustainable and to keep it for future generations. And that wasn't easy. You know, there were significant pressure from the European Union and also extreme concerns from many other coastal states about impacts on their own artisanal communities. But at the end of the day, we now have some limits, not enough, but we have some limits for yellowfin in the Indian Ocean. So I would hope in the next couple of years that the negotiations will continue and we might actually finally see overfishing of yellowfin in the Indian Ocean start to reduce as the European Union starts reducing its catches and we work out ways of equitably and sustainably managing the artisanal fishes to bring them in as well. It recalls to me something that Carl Safina, the great marine scientist and conservationist said. He said, the International Commission for the Conservation of Atlantic Tunas was the tuna body that he observed during their negotiations. And he came up with the phrase that they should rename it the international conspiracy to catch all the tuna. (laughs) So I've got to say, I've been to a number of these regional fisheries management organizations, and I'm really fortunate in that most of my life has been spent in the Western and Central Pacific, which, you know, I've worked with the Pacific Island governments that have shown tremendous leadership and vision. So my perception of these regional negotiations is sort of from a position of strength, where I work with strategic small island developing states that act collectively, and that collective power means that they can achieve things for sustainability. I'm not going to pretend that they always agree that it's easy. It takes a lot of work, but it's a really good way to enter this discussion. It's always good to hear how things should work. But Ian Urbina, a New York Times reporter and director of the Outlaw Ocean Project, points out that on the high seas, where a lot of tuna is caught, things aren't always that simple. Actually, it's pretty scary out there. What is the Outlaw Ocean Project, and how did you come to do it? So the Outlaw Ocean Project is a journalistic nonprofit organization, and it grew out of a series, an uh, investigative series that ran for about three years in the New York Times. And our goal is to produce long narrative investigative stories about human rights, labor, and environmental abuses at sea around the world. So this episode is about tuna. And if you even just barely scratch the surface of tuna, you start to realize that tuna are coming to us from far away. And oftentimes they're coming to us from a part of the world that is called the high seas. And I think a lot of people, when they hear high seas, they think, ah, you know, swashbucklers on the high seas, you know. <laughs> but the high seas are actually a legal term, and they apply to a particular part of the ocean. So could you tell me a little bit about that? The high seas, also called international waters, refer to that portion of water out there that are beyond the line of national jurisdiction. Usually that's 200 miles from shore. Generally speaking, This is the waters that are sort of a global commons. They belong in some ways to everyone and no one. There's an intricate bunch of different intergovernmental bodies that attempt to apply governance over them, but to not necessarily the the greatest effect. So when you talk about the outlaw ocean, are you primarily talking about this area, the high seas that are owned by nobody? 
Yeah, I focus on the bad stuff that happens offshore, which is not to say that all of it's bad, but a lot of the bad stuff that happens out there happen in that realm that's furthest from the reach of governments, and the high seas are foremost among those realms. And so what are some of the most egregious things that you've seen go on in this high seas area where tuna cross, big fish of all kinds cross, but basically all kinds of things are crossing this open, empty territory? The crimes are diverse, right? The crimes range from captive labor, whether they're debt bonded or actually shackled. There's also just murder and rape and beatings and wage theft and brutal working conditions. Typically, the deckhands on the category of ship that I'm looking at are migrant, usually trafficked, typically undocumented. You have intentional dumping of oil. You have arms trafficking. You have all sorts of other depravity going on as well. In the course of your reporting, have you been on a pirate ship? And if you have, what's it like? (laughs) If you think more broadly about piracy and poaching, then you take into account pirates of the marine life, poachers, folks who steal fish. and, And yeah, I've been aboard quite a few of those sorts of vessels. These are poor and rundown vessels because the use of cheap, illegal forced labor is a cost-saving tactic that usually is there because it's cheaper to do that than to mechanize your ship. And so these are barely seaworthy vessels. And on board, the conditions are rat and roach infested, sometimes directly above the engine room where crews are breathing day in and day out, engine fumes. The discipline on these vessels, there's typically a pretty strict hierarchy Because don't forget, you're looking at a social situation in which you have maybe five to 10 officers outnumbered four to one by crew. So there's a lot of performative, brutal violence that often occurs at the beginning of these long trips just to establish order and discourage mutiny. Have you met sea slaves? And if so, what are their lives like? The sea slavery portion of our reporting really looked at the South China Sea. The vessels that I boarded and reported on were five Thai officers, 40 Cambodian crew, ages ranging from 13 to 35. They had been at sea for a year and a half to two years. Two of the guys were missing fingers. One of the guys had a horribly infected wound. They typically work 18, 20-hour days, maybe six days a week. Living conditions are just horrific. And for all that brutality, There's camaraderie, there's laughter, there's song, there's playfulness. Just sort of the will to survive is pretty stubborn. Before I introduce our next guest, here's a quick word from our sponsor. Ecosystems are complex. Buying responsibly caught seafood doesn't have to be. Sitka Salmon Shares delivers a monthly share of seafood to your door that's sourced with the health of our fisheries, oceans, and communities in mind. Learn more about their wild-caught Alaska seafood and the fishermen who caught it, and find expertly crafted recipes at SitkaSalmonShares.com. So out on the open ocean, it's an ongoing fight for tuna. And nowhere is this fight more intense than in the tiny Republic of Palau, a country in the middle of the Pacific Ocean, 
I asked a senator from this small island nation how they managed to protect their precious tuna stocks against an onslaught of international fishing. My name is uh, Umi Sengibau. I'm currently the senator for the Palau National Congress. I'm chairing the Committee on Tourism, Environment, and Maritime. So let's talk about tuna. How important are tuna to Palau as a nation? Well, it is very important. One, it's providing the protein for uh, the local community, but also, more importantly, it's also an important revenue-generating fish for not only Palau, but also the Pacific uh, Islands. It's a commodity that the Pacific Islands actually sell to the distant water fishing nations to fish in their waters and generate a lot of revenues, actually, for, for a lot of small countries like Palau. Before there was any kind of treaty system in place, pretty much any nation could just kind of swoop in and catch the tuna that now is under Palau's control to some degree, right? Exactly. And really, this is a challenge for Palau as well as the other Pacific Islands. More for Palau because we're situated around the the Southeast Asian countries like Indonesia, the Philippines. And so we do have a lot of illegal fishing that are, are happening in our waters. Right. So you're, you're actually surrounded by these much larger, wealthier, more powerful fishing nations. Right. I've, unfortunately, I've not made it to Palau yet. I would very much like to come and visit. But I've been in the South Pacific, and, and my sense is that Palau has something of a unique story to tell with respect to its tuna fisheries. Can you tell me a little bit about what Palau specifically has done to make its tuna fisheries more sustainable? Right. Back in 2003, we passed what we call the Protected Areas Network. Protected Areas Network? Yes. That was mainly actually managing the coastal waters because it's very important for our main industry, which is tourism. Tourism is responsible for over 50% of our GDP. So tourism is even bigger than fishing. It is. And so we, we made sure that we wanted to manage the coastal fisheries first. But over the years, we realized that we need to connect our coastal waters with the high seas. And that's when, in, in 2015, we declared what we call the Palau National Marine Sanctuary, which is to protect 80% of our exclusive economic zone where the tuna are inhabiting. So, devil's advocate question. You're a small country, you rely on tourism, you, you have limited funds, and then right next door you have giant fishing nations. China isn't too far away, as you say, the Philippines, Indonesia. What can Palau do to protect itself from these pirate fishing fleets that come in and try to poach fish out of your waters? Well, we only have actually one marine patrol boat. We do now have two. We're actually also exploring a lot of different technology using satellite imagery. We have radar systems that have been installed with partnerships. I think the, the key for Palau is partnering up with a lot of NGOs, a lot of countries. We, we get support from Australia. The United States, even Japan, was, has been able to also help us. But all that's being said, mm-hmm. do you have any sense of like the percentage of tuna that are caught in Palau that are caught illegally? We used to have a lot of vessels that are caught fishing illegally. We're hardly seeing that now. I don't know if you recall with the former president, Norman Asao, that we also blew up two vessels that were illegally fishing. Oh, wow. Actually sank them to the bottom of the sea. Yeah, and I think that and that really sent a, a strong message that we're not going to tolerate this. After that, we didn't see a lot of, uh, in, in fact, they went to the other Pacific islands. So we're not seeing as much of the illegal fishing that's happening around Palau. 
where we are a bit more concerned about is more on the underreporting and also boats that maybe are offloading in the high seas. They're actually licensed to fish in Palau, and that's what we're suspecting that's happening. When they're coming in, the fish that are bringing in are not as much as, as before. So that's what uh, we're thinking it's happening. Oh, so in other words, they're offloading and not really reporting it. So they're technically legal, but... Yes, I, I think that's what's happening a lot in the Pacific Islands. Last question, uh, sort of a silly question, but I'm just wondering if you're in Palau and you're eating tuna, how are you eating it most often? We're mostly eating it as soup. Actually, the head for the tuna is the preferred part of that fish because it has the bones. And of course, uh, soup is uh, something that's very popular for the locals. So it's a soup where the head is the primary part that is used in the soup. What else would you put in the soup besides the head? We put local vegetables in, into the soup. It's like a cabbage. It's essentially a local cabbage. You might want to put some onions in it. You might put some garlic as well, chopped or minced garlic in it. It's really a fairly popular dish for the locals, yeah. Does the soup have a single name or is it like many different kinds of soup? It's called baldakle, yeah. Baldakle? Yeah, baldakle, yeah. I hope you visit one day in Palau and I'll surely make that soup for you and you can have a taste of Palau's very own baldakle. That is a tuna negotiation that I fully <laughs> endorse and approve. Yeah. <laughs> well, another time we'll try the senator's tuna head soup. But we've got to get back to that panzanetta that's been soaking. By now, all the flavors should have gotten into that bread we've tossed into the salad. So Melissa Clark from The New York Times will tell us now how to plate and eat it. All right. Well, we're back. Our croutons have soaked. So now, Melissa, what tuna do you recommend goes into this recipe from a flavor perspective? From a flavor perspective, you want to find a tuna that's been packed in olive oil rather than one that's packed in water. And why is that? I mean, just think about if you put anything in water, water is going to leach out some of the flavor. So for tuna, you put it in water and you're going to end up with bland tuna in a can full of tuna flavored water. But with olive oil, because it's a fat, it's going to keep the flavor in the tuna. And it's also, you know, olive oil will absorb some of that flavor as well. You can use that tuna flavored olive oil. It's an asset rather than a liability. In the course of producing this tuna episode, I talked to a lot of people in the tuna world and was told at the end of the day that the most sustainable, the lowest mercury tuna is going to be wild skipjack tuna from the Pacific. But I could not find any skipjack that was packed in olive oil. So what I did, and tell me if you think this is sound or unsound, I drained all the water off the can, and then I refilled it with my lovely Ligurian olive oil, and I've been letting it sit for two hours. What do you think of that? I love it. I think that's fabulous. Now, the other thing that I've done is I have a, a can of a sockeye salmon. I also drained the water out of it, and I also filled it with my lovely Ligurian olive oil and have been letting it sit. It's interesting. I went to a food co-op in Missoula, Montana, and they only had one tuna that was packed in olive oil, and it was skipjack, but I chose it because it was the only one that was there that was packed in olive oil. The real killer app for me would be salmon in olive oil, because that would totally remake the product. And just after I was having this whole experience, I wrote to my buddy who has a salmon community-supported fishery out of Bristol Bay, Alaska, and I said, Christopher, bring me back some whole salmon. I'll get the olive oil from Gustiamo. We're going to can these things. We're going to make like ventresca from the salmon bellies. Oh, 
Oh my God, amazing. I think it could be good. Could be good. All right, so here we are. We've got everything now ready to go. So how shall we mix these together? This is the time when you add your tuna and you should drain it a little bit, but maybe keep some of that nice olive oil you've been soaking it in. Maybe that's just gonna be good. I would say use your judgment there. Add some capers too, and just toss everything together with a little bit of, of olive oil. So I've actually got three bowls going because I have one bowl that's gonna be salmon, one bowl that's gonna be skipjack, and one bowl that's going to be my classic Italian version. So add your tuna and your capers to all of those. This is the point in recipes where you will discover if you are a good chef or a bad chef. This is the moment before you serve it when you, the chef, take a taste of whatever it is and decide if it needs more salt, more vinegar, or more olive oil. Because that is the key. Seasoning something well is what makes it a good dish or a bad dish. And you need to taste it before your guests do. So take a little taste and use your judgment. And chances are, if you think, eh, it's just meh, that's when you add your salt and your acid. So wise, Melissa. You must write for the times or something. (laughs) It's like you're a professional. This looks so beautiful. The red and the green and the white from the bread and the little bit of the flecks of red onion and the capers. Oh my gosh, I can't wait to try it. All right, so should we do the big tasting? Please, I'm dying to hear. All right, Nick, you go first because I have all these different things to taste. Oh my gosh, this is perfect. This is just delicious. The acidity of the tomatoes really enhances the taste of the tuna for sure. All right, so now I'm going to taste from left to right. I'm going Italian yellowfin. Then I'm going to do skipjack repackaged in olive oil and then salmon repackaged in olive oil. So here's the first one, Mm. which is excellent and actually exactly how I imagined it. So now the skipjack, which is also quite nice. It was enough time in the olive oil to have picked that up and to get away from that sort of dishwatery aspect of fishing in water. And then last, but certainly not least, this Alaskan sockeye, we'll try that, which is also nice. It has another note to it, which salmon does, right? But I certainly wouldn't rule it out. I think an overnight soak in olive oil would enhance that even more. Mm. I think that this is a lovely summer recipe. How did you go about developing this recipe? Panzanella is a favorite of mine. I often augment it and especially love mozzarella because I just, you know, who doesn't love a caprese salad, right? The mozzarella and the tomato together is just brilliant. And then adding the tuna makes it just that much more meal-like. I mean, I would happily eat a panzanella without any protein in it for lunch. But if you insist on protein at every meal and understandably, then you need to have either your cheese or your tuna. And I am a bit of a maximalist, so I will put cheese and, and tuna. I'm a tuna melt girl, as a matter of fact. <laughs> All right, well, if we do another season of Fish Talk, maybe we'll have you back for a tuna melt. Oh, I do love a tuna melt. Maybe I'll do a salmon melt, what do you think? Oh, next level, next level. So that's everything we could fit into this can of Fish Talk. We hope we've taken you a little bit beyond good taste and tasting good. Because for us, good taste really means eating what's good for the oceans. Thanks for tuning in. Catch us next week for another episode of Fish Talk. Nick here with your Fish Talk fish tip. I find tuna's lean, meaty texture to go great with salty and acidic ingredients. Things like capers in Melissa Clark's recipe, or even olives and lemons and other pickled veggies. So next time you're considering a dish with tuna, give one of these ingredients a try.
Experience the real-life struggles of small-scale fishermen in the new documentary, Last Man Fishing. Narrated by best-selling author Mark Bittman, the film explores the growing tensions between corporate interests and small-scale fishermen. Featuring conservationist Carl Safina and author Paul Greenberg, Last Man Fishing calls to question the ethics of the seafood industry and its impact on fishermen and the ocean. Watch it now on iTunes, Apple TV, or YouTube. Learn more at lastmanfishing.com.